First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with R.L. Mazes, author of Other People's Pets. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, and remember, I went to law school and practiced as a lawyer for a long time. And writing a novel was so challenging and so, I'm just going to say difficult, it is. And it's also the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. We'll be back with R.L. Mazes in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we're simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of first draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is R.L. Mazes, author of the short story collection We Love Anderson Cooper and the novel Other People's Pets. Mazes was born and raised in Queens, New York, and now lives in Colorado. Her work has appeared in Electric Literature, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Bellevue Literary Review, among others. 
Her novel, Other People's Pets, tells the story of Lala Fine, whose mother abandons her and her father, Zev. Father and daughter are perpetually struggling to make it on their own financially and emotionally and often rely on burglary as their source of income. When the novel opens, Lala's life is on the up and up as she is excelling in veterinary school and engaged to the love of her life. But things take a turn for the worse in her life when Zev gets arrested and needs money for his legal bills. We began the discussion with R.L. Mazes sharing her dream of becoming a writer. I've wanted to be a writer since I was very young. I mean, I think I wrote a little staple-bound book when I was seven years old um, and then continued to write, and I wrote in college. And, and then I actually dropped out of college. I dropped out of Barnard because I had won some tiny honorable mention in, uh, for, for writing, you know, an honorable mention for a writing award there. And I was, I was convinced, okay, that's it. I don't need school anymore. So I dropped out and got a job. At Scholastic Magazine, eventually doing first production work and proofreading and copy editing and then editing for them. But I, I lost sight of my own writing, you know, in working in children's publishing. And then eventually I went back to become a lawyer. Um, and I don't know why. Honestly, I don't know why I stopped or lost sight of that dream. Some people did discourage me. I, I was discouraged certainly by my dad, who had a very tumultuous childhood. He came from Russia, but said to me, you know, you can't write. You have nothing to write about. And I suppose compared to his life, my life was not as exciting. But of course, I think everybody has something to write about. I think if you examine your life, and then of course, fiction writing is writing from the imagination. So I think everybody really has things that concern them that they can train their imagination on and write about. But anyway, I was discouraged. So I put the dream away for a while. And then my mother uh, passed away suddenly when I was 40 years old or 39 years old, just about to turn 40. And it was a tremendous loss for me. But it also contained a lesson, which was that you don't know how long you have. So if you have a dream, better get to it. So after that, I started writing every day. And I was a lawyer. I had become a lawyer, but I started writing every day after working as a lawyer. I did that for many, many years um, and until I could finally transition to writing full time. So if your dad was an immigrant from Russia, I think he was a Jewish immigrant, right? Yes. So I know how much education is valued. So was it really shocking when you dropped out of school? You know, he was very absent from our family. So I know he disagreed with the decision, was not happy with the decision, but I, I mostly, he was mostly an absence in my life. Um, he didn't live with us for a long time or he would disappear for uh, weeks, sometimes in months at a time, and we wouldn't know where he went. So he just wasn't that involved, even to the point of being concerned when I dropped out. I mean, I think he was concerned, but not to the point of making any kind of fuss about it. So, you know, I was free to go. And I, as I said, I, I worked in children's publishing when I dropped out because I knew how to read and I knew how to proofread and I learned how to copy edit. So I, that was sort of close to my dream working in children's publishing. But of course, it wasn't my dream because my dream was really writing fiction. And then gradually, you know, at some point I said, I really need to finish my education. So I 
went back to school. And I must have forgotten the dream at that point because I majored in history, although I will say that history is stories. So in some ways, the dream was still kind of sneaking around in there um, as I, you know, I was really, I loved history. I still love history uh, because it is stories and it is about human nature. And so I did that. And then, of course, I was a liberal arts major with a history degree. What do you do? Right. There aren't that. So you go to law school. I never really wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> I practiced for a long time, but it was never something that I felt like, oh, wow, that's what I want to do with my life. So it's interesting to hear a little bit of your story and your personal background because your novel, Other People's Pets, is about a main character, Lala Fine, who is in veterinary school and has an estranged mother. So her mother disappeared and she's very close to her father, Zev, who's unreliable in certain ways. He is a burglar and taught her how to burgle, how to burgle. So I see from what you're saying, some parallels to your life, but also how you switched that around. I wanted to explore in the book that absent parent. But I think since I write fiction, it's helpful to to change in disguise. Um, I mean, my father's passed away, so it wasn't that I was afraid of hurting him or hurting um, my mother. It, it, it was more that um, I just think to get some distance from the story, it's especially that aspect of it, it's good to fictionalize it because uh, neither of my parents were burglars either, so that's not autobiographical. Um, but uh, I did want to explore in the book this idea of an absent parent. Now, Alyssa Lala's parent is much more absent than even my father was. Um, But it still gave me some material to just explore the loss that she feels as a child and also to explore the impact on her as an adult. Uh, And, you know, even my mother's passing away, that was another loss that I experienced as a loss that I wanted to explore in the book. And so I was really exploring both the loss of my father in certain ways and the loss of my mother in certain ways. Did you learn anything different that you didn't know by writing fiction about your truth in relation to this? Well, one of the things that I think part of Lala's journey in the book is to see her parents in a more holistic way, both of them, both her mother and her father. And how successful she is, I leave that up to the reader. But that's certainly one of her challenges in life. And it brought me back to thinking about my parents, both of them, and to thinking about each of them in a more holistic way. So, yeah, I think I did. In the novel, it opens and we meet Lala and she is engaged to a man named Clem, who's a chiropractor. And she lives in Colorado. And her dad, Zev, is, you know, pulling off these jobs, but not all the time. But he ends up getting caught and he has a big legal bill. And so Lala, who learned um, the trade from her dad, realizes that basically he's the one that has always been there for her because her mom abandoned her when she was pretty young. So she decides that she's going to have to raise the money for his legal bills. And the only way to do it for her is to go and and rob houses or burglar houses, I guess. So that's what she does. And she loses a lot along the way. She has to drop out of school. She has um, she loses her fiance. And 
what she has are animals. So animals is a big part of who she is in the world. She actually feels their pain. And we can talk a little bit more about how that fed into the plot. But I'm just wondering if you want to share anything more about the momentum of this and how you set up this predicament for Lala. Another theme that I wanted to explore in the book was what do we owe our families? Because I think quite often, you know, we have to make choices in life that either bring us closer to or further away from our families. And so I liked exploring that idea of here is Lala and she's finally, she's an animal empath. So she can actually feel not only the feelings of animals, but she feels their physical pain in her body. And she's in the perfect profession for her. She's in veterinary school. She's actually in her fourth year of veterinary school and about to graduate and become a veterinarian and to reach her dream. And then her father gets arrested and she's put in this position of, well, there's nobody else. It's just the two of them. And he's on house arrest and he doesn't have money saved because that's just, you know, he, he's, a, he's been a burglar and a locksmith. He doesn't have a lot of money. And whatever money he's had, he's helped her with veterinary school, et cetera. And so she has this, this choice she has to make. Does she stay in veterinary school and for, fulfill her life? Or does she return to a life of crime in order to take care of her father, who she you know, realizes took care of her in many ways? And so the book, that sets up the plot for her to, at first, you know, take one path and then ask herself who she is. Is she a daughter? Is she a burglar? Is she a veterinarian? And it's really her story of self-discovery. And sometimes maybe we feel like we have to answer that with one answer, but it's usually never answer, one answer. I think that's really true. Absolutely. There's, we can hold many selves within ourselves. Yes. It seems to her that it's binary, but maybe you're right. Maybe, in fact, that's her perception of it, that maybe it's not as binary as she thinks it is. Well, maybe that choice is what maybe sometimes makes us so miserable is like we're, we're, we're trying to fit ourselves into just one box when if we had greater, it's almost like empathy for ourselves, right? She has all this empathy for the animals, but if we had that empathy for ourselves, maybe we could have an easier time on our journeys. Yes, absolutely. Right. And, you know, Lala doesn't only have trouble having empathy for herself. She has trouble with empathy for most people. Really, the only person she, at least at the beginning of her journey, the only person she really has empathy for in some ways is Zev. And that's not even, it's sometimes a question as to whether that's empathy for Zev or just not wanting to lose him since she's already lost one parent. So she, that's definitely a challenge for Lala is while she relates so well to animals, um, she doesn't relate that well to people. Right. And she has, well, she has a cat named Mo, but the dad, Zev, has kind of taken over that cat. And so in her household, she has these two dogs, um, Black and Blue, who were both rescue dogs. And that's very important to her to rescue animals. And you know, she is this empath for animals. She feels their pain. She she feels like their feelings and what's going on. She can read them really well. And I'm curious about about your relationship with animals and this characteristic you wanted to give her as a character. Right. So I'm certainly not an animal empath, um, although I do love animals. And I, I, I love rescuing animals um, from shelters um, and working with shelter animals. And I should say, yeah, I'm, I'm vegan. 
also, you know, I walk around uh, the world and notice animals, um, and I do, I'm very aware of the pain that animals are in, not that I feel it in my body necessarily, but I'm aware of the way society is set up. Both wild and domestic animals are suffering a lot at the hands of human beings, whether it's, uh, you know, habitat destruction or whether it's uh, clipping ears, you know, on a, on a, on a dog or um, those kinds of things that we do to animals. And so I did think, what would it be like to create a character who can feel animals' pain uh, and their emotions? And what would life be like for her just wandering around the world? And I thought it would be just a great experience to imagine that and a great exercise to imagine that. It also brought me a little bit into the realm of magical realism, which is a genre I love. So I was very happy to kind of discover as I was writing the book that Lala was an animal empath and it made me even more excited about writing the book. Have you ever met one, an animal empath? No, no, I haven't. Um, I once uh, watched a television show about a a woman who claimed to be an animal communicator. And I just say claimed, I don't know if she was or not. So she claimed to be able to um, communicate mentally with your animal and to have the animal kind of speak back to her and to tell you what's bothering them. Uh, But she certainly, you know, it was nothing like Lala's ability to feel the the physical pain of animals in her body, which of course is such a good uh, skill for her to have if she wants to be a veterinarian. Um, because if you think about it, I'm always amazed by veterinarians. You know, unlike a human doctor, it's, ch- it's challenging enough to be a doctor for human beings who can come in and say it hurts here, you know, and it's been hurting for this long, and it hurt when I did this. But you know, animals come in. And veterinarians have to be real detectives to figure out uh, a diagnosis. Um, so uh, I thought giving her that skill would also serve her well if she became a veterinarian. So you were talking about veterinarians and how she was going to be a veterinarian. So you had a lot of pretty intense veterinary facts. You had yeah. her sometimes listing off medicines or lifting off, listing off different solutions to help dogs or cats. And so I would imagine this took a lot of research. So this book took a lot of research in two big areas. It took a lot of research into veterinary medicine, and it took a lot of research into burglars (laughs) Um, because I wanted both of those to be obviously authentic and get to get both right. Also, um, when I had a very close to final draft of the book, I had a veterinarian read the entire book. And, and, um, and she was a veterinarian with an English degree. It was so perfect. I, 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 you know, a friend of mine hooked me up and it was, I was like, you couldn't have found me a more perfect person to read this book. And so um, she definitely found some things that needed to be tweaked and, um, you know, some language and some um, just different aspects of the veterinary medicine. And so I was very grateful to her and, um, and that helped me, I hope, um, get it all right. And how did you balance that research? Did you just kind of write and write and then realized you needed to research something? Do you do it in tandem or do you do it kind of after you write something and realize you need to figure out what you just wrote or what you wanted to include? I do something that I don't recommend and I'm trying actually on my new book not to do it. Um, with write, writing this book, I would stop a lot right in the middle and go research something. I really don't recommend that because I think you go 
down rabbit holes that way and you lose time. And I think it's not so hard to just bracket, you know, research and just describe what you need to find out and bracket it off and go back to it at a time dedicated to the research. Um, and I am, as I said, I just started a new book, which I won't say anything more about than that, but I am trying every time I have the urge to go on the internet to research something, I'm bracketing it off so that I don't stop the momentum of the writing. And I will also say that I, I had written a draft and I thought I had a few questions about um, about veterinary medicine. So I actually, before I hired, it was just much earlier than, than when I um, you know had that woman read the book, I called my own veterinarian and asked her if she wouldn't ma- mind answering a couple of questions for me. And um, she was very sweet about it. And uh, the questions at that point were largely about veterinary education, because in the book, Lala is in veterinary school. So, And I asked her a couple of questions about veterinary education. And they were so off the mark that she cracked up. She just couldn't stop laughing. Even I couldn't even form my questions in a way that was sensible. So at that point, I realized I needed to learn a lot more about what veterinary education is like in veterinary school before those scenes and that part of the book would be right. So I actually read a couple of veterinary memoirs and actually memoirs of veterinary education. And so that helped me have in my mind what does Lala know at this point in her career? What was interesting, I think, too, about Lala and Zev is that they're not bad people. You know, you might assume that someone who goes out and and burglars all these houses and makes off with sometimes family heirlooms or, you know, jewelry that has been handed down, like not just stuff, but some meaningful stuff. But they're also just trying to survive, albeit they have other ways to do it. They just aren't. So it, it makes the characters much more complicated. Yes. So when I decided to make them burglars, I knew I was going to have to give them other characteristics to make them well-rounded characters that a reader would be willing to root for. So, you know, in Lala's case, well, she's an animal empath and she loves animals and she takes care of animals. So that immediately makes her a more sympathetic character, as does the loss of her mother. The fact that her mother has abandoned her makes her a more sympathetic character. Uh, a little trickier with Zev um, to make him a little bit, you know, somewhat sympathetic. So the reader would want to follow him around. And, and in his case, you know, I think the fact that he tries so hard, even though he fails a lot, but he tries so hard to take care of Lala when she's a child and obviously loves her and cares for her. I think that relationship um, helps fill out his character and round it out a little bit. So we're, so they don't come across as just, just villains. I think so much of the book was about this razor thin line between survival and not surviving that can that can manifest itself in so many ways like that razor thin line between her excelling at veterinary school and being so close to the ending and having a completely different life and then having to drop out or Zev you know this razor thin line between getting away with what he's doing and what he's gets caught doing and life and death for all these animals and and the and walking into the wrong house to to attempt to steal things and one of those lines that is also very interesting to me is is that thin line between the skills you get as a locksmith and using it in a criminal way so 
I, I like what you're pointing out in the book, but I, I want to be honest with you. I didn't think about, um, I mean, obviously I thought about choices and I thought about points at which characters have to make choices that will take them into opposite directions. Um, so I did think about that, but I wasn't so much thinking about necessarily a razor thin line. Um, maybe in some ways because the two choices are, are stark, you know, uh, and even for, even for Zev, I mean, you know, the question is, you know, he's a locksmith and yes, those skills also help him burgle houses, but could he have made a living as a locksmith? You know, was, was this a necessary, was it necessary for him to become a burglar? And if not, then why did he? And Lala too, you know, she sees a binary choice, you know, become a burglar or let, you know, or Zev will go to prison because he won't have a good attorney. But was there a third choice for her? I mean, don't people, you know, that's how she viewed it, but don't people find other ways to raise money or to work and for what they need? So, um, I think it's more her perception and Zev's maybe perception of things, of them needing to be on the path that they're on rather than them really needing to be on that path. While you were writing this, did you put more locks on your door? I became very aware of what was safe uh, in terms of what were good locks and what were not good locks and how um, uh, burglars would break into homes. And I would... And I definitely changed some of my behavior uh, around my house. It might be something as simple as not leaving a window open, not leaving a, even a second story window. Because I was reading about how, especially if you have a table in your yard, which we do, they can climb up on the table and then climb through the second story window. And that's actually one of the ways that they get into homes. Um, so definitely I started looking at things with a slightly different eye. And of course, these days, a lot of people have that ring uh, doorbell camera. And so I started to be aware of who has it, and who doesn't it doesn't and what angles can it take? You know, it was just, yeah, I definitely started looking at the world like a burglar. <laughs> and is there anything else about the book you want to share before I get to the final questions? I want to say that, um, right, this is, my first published novel. I have a novel in a drawer, as many writers do. But this was the first novel that I really finished and took through, you know, a dozen, at least, edits, uh, drafts. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. And remember, I went to law school and practiced as a lawyer for a long time. And writing a novel was so challenging and so I'm just going to say difficult. It is. Um, and it's also the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. And so I just want to say I want to encourage anyone who's thinking they might like to do it to try it. That it, as, as hard as it is, as much work as it is, it pays you back. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So um, this is from Karen Bender's novel. I love all of Karen Bender's work, and this is from her novel, A Town of Empty Rooms. And it's a passage close to the beginning of the novel, maybe the second or third page. Serena Hirsch, the main character, is walking around. I'm, I'm just giving you some background. Serena Hirsch, the main character, is walking around Saks Fifth Avenue a week after her father, Aaron Hirsch, has died. So here's from the book. She stopped in fine jewelry. 
her father had liked this section, for he could point out appropriate jewelry that one could store for future pawning. He was not interested in how a diamond necklace might be purchased for a fancy outfit, but in how it could be slipped into a pocket and carried to another country to be sold if America fell apart. This could, in his mind, happen at any moment. So I have such admiration for the characterization Bender accomplishes in this paragraph. Characterization of both the father and also the daughter who's carrying around the father inside herself as she walks through the store. Um, the paragraph is written with the kind of words the father might have used, fancy outfit, fell apart. Um, and it, it shows the burden that he unwillingly places on his daughter to be ever watchful. So that's one just from a writing perspective. I just, I thought that was a great paragraph as so, so much of her, everything, I mean, really everything she writes is great. I also really connected to this though, because as a Jewish person, you know, the descriptions of watchfulness and fear of needing to flee as Jews have had to do throughout history is something I really, I really connect to. So uh, it really touched me on both, uh, you know, as a writer and also just from my own history. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Okay. This is from other people's pets. And the scene is a flashback to a time before Alyssa left. And it's a time when she's taking Lala, who's eight, skating on a lake. And it's also a time before cell phones are ubiquitous. At first, they stayed together, flying over the ice. Lala's cheeks turned pink. The cold air sharpened Alyssa's senses. Zev was right. She ought to spend more time with Lala. She could take her on other outings to the zoo or a farm. While Alyssa imagined feeding straw to a baby goat, the animal's lips tickling her palm, Lala skated away. By the time Alyssa petted the pigs and cows, Lala was at the far end of the lake. Alyssa saw her briefly and then not at all. Fear threatened to immobilize her, but she forced herself to skate as fast as she could. Lala had dropped into a hole in the ice, its edges jagged and thin, translucent. Ten feet away, Alyssa stopped. If she went any closer, the water would swallow them both. Alyssa didn't want to die on the lake. She barely lived, her life consumed by a family she didn't want. She turned and skated toward the car. So throughout the book, as we talked about, Alyssa is mostly in absence and she's a villain. And as I revised the novel, I felt like it was important to give Alyssa a few scenes, to give her a, a say, you know, a chance to explain. I felt I owed that to the character, even if every reader might not like her explanation, but I thought some would. I thought some would even identify with it. Where do you write? I write in a lot of different places. Um, I will write a draft of something in my home office, and then to mix it up, I might do the next draft in the bedroom. And sometimes I write in the kitchen. And I wrote part of the novel on a ship, and I really enjoyed the forward motion on that ship. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? There is a trail behind my house in Niwot, Colorado, and I love to take Rosie on it. It's fairly empty. Um, you know, there might be a runner or a person on a horse, 
uh, someone else walking their dog, and I can see the Rocky Mountains from the trail. Uh, I love love the view of the Rocky Mountains. So um, there's something else I do, and I almost hate to admit this, but I watch reality TV. <laughs> I watch Shark Tank and I watch House Hunters. And I, I'm, you know, I was thinking maybe that's as far as you can get from literary fiction, but you know maybe that's not true um, since those shows are largely fiction, um, and the producers go to great lengths to inject drama and conflict and tension, you know, into the shows. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, it depends on the project. Uh, almost always, my husband will see it first. Um, I know he'll be honest about it. And I do tend to work with developmental editors. That's usually later in the process, but they're an important uh, reader for me. Um, and um, my agent will always see it pretty early on. Uh, and sometimes she'll hear about it when it's still just an idea. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, cried. Uh, not usually, but sometimes. Um, once I got three agent rejections on the same day. And I was really, you know, they were all reading, I think, the full. And um, and uh, so that was a bad day. But I also, but not, I don't usually cry. Usually I just go on to the next thing. And, and um, I also eat vegan chocolate cake. Uh, and I... I eat it to celebrate, too, so I end up eating a lot of cake. What is your favorite word? So I don't have one favorite word, but uh, a word I really like is quirky. And I like to read the word. I like to hear my own work, I should say, described as quirky. And I like it when people describe their work as quirky, and I like to read that kind of work. You know, something like Kevin Wilson's work or um, uh, Mural, Mural Barbary's The Elegance of the Hedgehog, uh, Elizabeth McKenzie's The Portable Veblen. So those kinds of books. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for the conversation. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was R.L. Mazes, author of Other People's Pets. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Karen Bender, whose work Mazes read as an example of an author that influenced her. Karen Bender and I discussed her short story collection, The New Order. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.